Welcome to Dialogues with the Past, the High Point University history podcast dedicated to delving into the past and learning from historical experts from around the world. I am Mac Mullins, a history major and enthusiast. Today I am joined by High Point University's professor in history who specializes in the cultural and intellectual history of 19th century America, Dr. Paul Ringel. It's a pleasure to have you here today, Dr. Ringel. Thanks for having me, Mac. So, Everyone knows the phrase, conjunction, junction, what's your function, and I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill. These are due to the great popularity of the popular schoolhouse rock shorts that have become an integral part of American childhood, as they have been played in schools throughout America. Released in 1973, almost 200 years following the founding of America, the shorts have educated countless children with lessons on grammar, mathematics, and, most importantly for our episode, American history. However, as we approach the 250th year anniversary of America's founding, Dr. Ringel argues that Schoolhouse Rock's discussions on American history may not be as inclusive as they could be. Today, we will be discussing the history of Schoolhouse Rock and the possibilities of creating a more open, diverse, and civically conscious show. So, Dr. Ringel, to begin, could you introduce us to the world of television in the early 1970s? What would, what would children have been able to watch? Sure. So um, children in the early 1970s would have been kind of obsessed with Saturday morning cartoons. There was a, a tradition that started probably about the mid-60s where the Saturday morning television block from about 9 to noon or so became filled with cartoons and children's-based programming and at that point, this is pre-cable, pre-internet, so it's really just three networks. It's CBS, ABC, and NBC. And kids would sit down with their favorite sugar cereal and you know whatever they could get their hands on and just enjoy those cartoons for hours. So during this time, there appears to be a controversy regarding children's television. What exactly was happening here? So there's a couple of different controversies. One is that as the networks really started creating these Saturday morning blocks, there were a lot of commercials that were aimed directly at kids for things like G.I. Joe and Easy Bake Ovens and Sugar Cereals, which is why I said that before. Uh, And parents became pretty concerned that the commercializing... Okay, let me try that again. Parents became increasingly concerned at the marketing that was happening to kids and kids running into stores and wanting this and wanting that. And they began to protest to the networks that they didn't want their children turned into little marketing drones. And so that was one of the two issues. The other was the violence on children's television. And that's probably a familiar subject for your audience. But especially as the violence became more and more real um, in American society in the late 60s with Uh, visuals of the Vietnam War and the fighting going on over there and the assassinations of Dr. King and Robert Kennedy. Um, Parents, and especially mothers, became very concerned about the violence that children were seeing on TV. So in the late 60s, there was an organization formed called Action for Children's Television that really pushed to have commercials taken out of Saturday morning television and to force the networks to be less violent in the content that they were producing for children. And the way they were trying to do that was by getting the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, involved 
and trying to get them to regulate things. So at some point during the, in 1971, a man named David McGall makes a proposition to ABC with a new idea. Um, Schoolhouse Rock, uh, what was his idea and what was, and how was this appealing to ABC executives? Yeah. So the legend is, and, and I wasn't able to confirm this because despite uh, repeated efforts to reach out to David McCall's children, I wasn't able to get confirmation. But the legend is David McCall, this isn't the legend. It was true that David McCall was uh, one of the leading advertising executives in New York City and the head of a big firm. And he was out on a vacation at a dude ranch with his family. And he had a young son who was struggling with math and home. And he noticed when they were out on one of their horseback rides that his son couldn't remember basic mathematics, but he knew the words of every lyric for every Rolling Stone song. And so he decided that the way to teach math was through music, or at least it was a good idea to try. And before they pitched it to ABC, he and some of his other ad executives and a jazz musician they knew named Bob Doro uh, created a LP, a vinyl record, of songs designed to help kids learn mathematics. And they took it and they tested it at schools around New York City, which is where they were all working, and the teachers loved it. And ABC was one of McCall's leading clients. And so he decided, hey, if this worked on record, maybe I can pitch it to them as a cartoon. And he knew that ABC was looking for educational programming because of Action for Children's Television, um, they really were looking for ways to push back and say that they weren't just trying to commercialize children, that they were also trying to educate them. So McCall thought this would be a really good kind of mutually beneficial solution, and the ABC folks snapped it up right away. So how did McCall and his team go about preparing for the shorts to air? So did they recruit experts in fields on education? Did they get uh, expert cartoonists? Well, so they had the visual artists from the advertising agency do the cartoons, and they had their musician, Bob Doro, who was a really well-known jazz musician at the time, and they were recording this out in Los Angeles with a kind of an all-star set of studio musicians. So they had the art and they had the music. Um, they had education professors at a school in New York called the Bank Street School, which was a, a graduate school for training teachers. So they had education experts kind of chiming in. But as far as I can tell, they didn't hire historians or mathematicians or, or grammar experts to help them with the content. Um, Bob Doro said that when he did the first math question, or the first math episode, three is a magic number, he consulted a math textbook and he got his content that way. Um, as best I can tell, and we can dig into this more if you want to, I think they were probably doing the same thing with the history that they went to textbooks because they were really, the history they were using was pretty out of date by the time it came out in Schoolhouse Rock. Well, we'll be definitely be touching on that in a minute, but I definitely would like to talk about uh, their visual style just for a brief second. So it's to my understanding that during this time, uh, Sesame Street was also released around the same time. So both are educational shows uh, that are targeted towards children what exactly, uh, so what similarities did they have in terms of who created them, uh, where their economic origins came from? What exactly inspired them to do this? Yeah, so Sesame Street is a couple years older, but one of the things that I argue in my article is that basically 
this work came out of the same kind of creative class of New York um, advertisers and writers and musicians. Um, the big difference between Sesame Street and the other PBS shows like Electric Company and Schoolhouse Rock was that Sesame Street and the other PBS shows got a tremendous amount of funding from the federal government and from private foundations. And they went through years of testing and assessment and research and bringing in experts to try to figure out the best way to teach children about everything from diversity to language to any topic that they wanted to cover. Whereas Schoolhouse Rock was really done on a shoestring budget. Um, ABC didn't give them a lot of money to work with. They just kind of worked from their own advertising budget. And so they didn't do any of that kind of testing. They didn't bring in any kind of expertise. And really the purpose was different. Um, for PBS, this was a real opportunity to create a new way to educate kids um, through television. Television had always been seen as something that really was mostly just uh, entertainment, but the educational options were really exciting for the people at PBS and at Children's Television Workshop, which is the organization that created Sesame Street. On the other hand, ABC was really looking for a way to get the FCC and Action for Children's Television off their backs. And so this was kind of a quick and easy way for them to say, hey, see, we're doing education, um, so get off our backs. And they had tried to do, all the networks had really tried to do half-hour educational programs, and really the only one that had any staying power in that group was Bill Cosby's show, Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids. Uh, other than that... Those shows just didn't really interest the kids at all. So they decided, well, this is great. We can do a three-minute, you know, they called it interstitial programming, which basically means they put it in between Wiley e. Coyote and Roadrunner and, and the Super Friends and things like that. They just shaved a commercial or two out, and they put three is a magic number or conjunction, junction, or I'm just a bill in between the two half-hour shows. And it was really just a way to get the censors and the – the activists off their back. So it definitely is. It sounds like Schoolhouse Rock was a response to uh, active attempts to uh, alleviate corporatism out of uh, childhood television. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, so with that said, let's move on to the historical aspects of the show, okay. as this is what we are focusing on here. So what experience? So as we mentioned before, the creators did not uh, rely on experts or anything to create these. Um, uh, these uh, explorations of history for children. Uh, did they have any background at all when it came to exploring history? Not that I know of. So uh, what would their depictions of American history look and sound like? Then? So the season that was called America Rock, which was focused on American history, was the third season of the show. They did Multiplication Rock first, then they did Grammar Rock, which was Interjections and Conjunction Junction and all of that. And by the time they got around to doing American history, it was the fall of 1975, which was the year before the bicentennial. And so they intentionally set up this season to be a celebration of the bicentennial of the founding. And almost all, not all of them, but almost all of the episodes are focused on the Revolutionary War period. And the goal was not to analyze American history or interrogate American history, but to celebrate American history and basically show the country how great we were and to make us feel good about ourselves. 
So what depictions do we see that, uh, you know, result in some of these inaccuracies of celebration? Sure. So there's a couple of things that I find really problematic here. One is the lack of representation, and you can see this in a a number of different ways. Some of it is in in what's not there. Um, When they do the revolutionary history, in fact, probably the most famous of the history episodes is one called Shot Heard Round the World. It's the start of the revolution. And they find a way to go straight from the pilgrims landing on Plymouth Rock to the Revolutionary War. And what that does is it leaves out Virginia, it leaves out the entire South, and there's no mention of slavery at all. There's really almost no mention of race in the Schoolhouse Rock episodes that focus on history. They're very focused when we're looking at contemporary children on giving diversity and a kind of a rainbow coalition of American kids. But when we look at the history episodes, race and any other kinds of challenging subjects are ignored. So, like I said, in in, um, Shot Heard Around the World, they ignore slavery and they ignore the entire South. Another example of this is there's an episode called Mother Necessity, which isn't about the revolution. It's about inventors. And all of the inventors are white men. But what's even more problematic than that is when they do Eli Whitney, who was the inventor of the cotton gin, they start playing Dixie in the background and they show these two workers. They don't identify them as slaves and they're kind of of ambiguous race. They have kind of slightly darker skin, but they kind of have afros. And so I think they're supposed to suggest black people, but they're not really clear and it's not any, there's no indication that they're slaves. And you have this kind of Colonel Sanders looking overseer who's wearing a white hat and a white suit and sort of happily overseeing these two young men who are working through the cotton gin, which of course is not the way that it worked. And, you know, the cotton gin was, was vital to the revitalization of slavery through the focus on cotton rather than tobacco. Um, Another example of that is in the great American melting pot episode which talks about immigration and how all these people came from different countries to form the American population. They focus on all these different European um, backgrounds and they talk about my family was from France and my family was from Italy and my family was from Sweden. And then there's in the middle in the chorus part, you've got Lady Liberty holding her tablets and it's, it's meant to be a recipe book, the great American melting pot. And you've got one part France, one part Armenia, one part Poland. So they're really digging into um, Europe and they call Africa. All you get is Africa. You don't get Nigeria. Africa is one country in this episode. And so there's just no accommodation for not only the slave experience, but even a more modern version of the African experience. Why do you believe that's so? I mean, only a few years ago, the before the uh, this season was passed, the Civil Rights Act was uh, created and passed. So how did we suddenly descend into such ignorance of these topics? I think there's two reasons. Um, one is that when the... the um, bicentennial is happening, 
the goal is to keep everybody happy. And this is, again, we're in the point where it's network television and pre-cable, and that's important because you're working for a mass audience, right? There are three networks, so you're looking to get everybody included and keep everybody happy. And the way that they thought to keep everybody happy was just to make it look like everything was good and everything was was cheery and, and you know, everything we could be proud of. So, you know, it's not only that the... Civil Rights Act had happened 10 years earlier, but this is happening at the same time that black studies departments and gender studies departments and indigenous studies departments or Native American studies departments were happening all over the country. They were blossoming up. There were all these controversies happening on campuses um, where students were calling for more inclusion. But the writers of Schoolhouse Rock either weren't interested or just didn't know enough to be looking at what was happening when in the way that college campuses were treating history or even the way that, that schools might have been treating history, they were going back to textbooks that were mostly written in the 1950s, which was the pre-civil rights era, and, and this stuff just didn't get covered. So given the inaccurate depictions of American history, what do you believe was the impact on generations growing up with Schoolhouse Rock? Well, I think there's a lot of really good impact that comes out of Schoolhouse Rocked. Uh, one, one of the things I tried to figure out that was just impossible is how many people have actually watched these videos because there's so many different forms. They, they ran on ABC on Saturday mornings over and over and over again. They were in uh, DVD packages. They're now available on YouTube and on Disney+. And, and it's just impossible to know. There's even a, a show... Um, my kids did a Schoolhouse Rock Junior show during their middle school theater program. Um, so there's a show, there's there's all these different ways that kids are getting these songs. Um, and, you know, even today, 50 years after they come out, if you ask someone my age, I was a little too young for the earlier ones, but I, I was watching them five or six years later. Um, people can still sing the entire preamble of the Constitution, or they can sing... Um, they know what a conjunction is, or they know what an interjection is, or they know how to do math tables because of Schoolhouse Rock. I, I think it's one of the most impressive um, public instruction projects that ever has happened in this country. But when it comes to history, one of the things that really concerns me is that it, it leaves probably the majority of the kids who've watched it out of the story, right? Their background isn't part of the story. Let me give you one more example um, Elbow Room is the Western expansion episode. And just from the name of it, and I'm doing my flapping of the arms with the Elbow Room here, they're talking about Western expansion only from the perspective of the white Europeans, right? There's no talk about the indigenous people who were there. There is, I counted, three seconds of Saga Jawea in the three-minute um, episode, and there are no other people of color in these episodes at all. So you're just ignoring most of the experiences of the kids who are actually watching these episodes. The other thing that really concerned me when I went back to look at these and I hadn't thought about them in a really long time, but when I went to research them is that they don't really give kids an understanding of how historical change actually happens. And so one example I can give of that, there's a women's suffrage episode called suffering towards suffrage. And there's a line that says, women stood in lines and marched with signs until the law was passed. 
basically what they're telling kids is you just got to go walk and, and hold a sign up once or twice and they'll pass a law. But if you look at the history of the women's suffrage movement, it starts really in 1848 and they don't get suffrage. They don't get the vote until 1920. So that's multiple generations and the kids just don't have a solid understanding of how change actually happens. And if they get excited about a, a cause and they go out and march and things don't happen the way they want to in the first march, people get discouraged. And so I want to really try to give them some kind of an understanding that history works a little differently than that. So uh, in your article, you state the idea of bringing back Schoolhouse Rock. So uh, over the past few decades, uh, Schoolhouse Rock is closing in on uh, 50 years old. So between the time that it was released and now, many different television shows have been released, introducing new concepts and new ideas. What television shows have you seen that uh, introduce uh, historical topics well, and what can we learn from them? So I think probably the best show on historical topics is Liberty's Kids, which was a PBS show that ran, I think, the early 90s or, or late 90s, or early 2000s on, on PBS. And it was about kids um, living through the American Revolution. I think it starts with the Tea Party and ends with George Washington's inauguration as the first president. And they do have a, a diversity solution there. And in fact, some people think they actually go too far, that there are characters that represent tiny little fractions of the American population. For example, there are almost no Jews and very few uh, Mexicans in the United States or in the colonies during this time period. But the show really went overboard to show this kind of wide level of diversity. Um, another criticism that's come out about um, Liberty's Kids is that it doesn't really show the limitations that women and enslaved people would have had during this time period. One of the main characters is a young woman and she kind of roams freely. She's the daughter of a British aristocrat and she kind of roams freely through the colonies with friends and unchaperoned, which is not something that an aristocratic young woman would have been allowed to do. And with the enslaved characters, one of them just, decides one day that he needs to run away and go goes ahead and does it. And the damage with something like that is that it makes people think, well, slaves could have run away anytime they wanted to. And in fact, there were massive obstacles that kept that from happening. So even with the best shows, um, diversity is better, but showing how change actually happens is still something that I think we're doing much better with picture books than we do with television. And I'd like to try to change that. So, uh, so how could these ideas be implemented into a new schoolhouse rock? Well, I'm working on a project with a friend and colleague at North Carolina A&T and a filmmaker and a hip-hop artist down in Atlanta. And um, we're trying to take some of the ideas from some of the best children's books, which really show a kind of more complexity about who the opponents were, um, for issues like slavery or segregation and show the, the slower pace of change and they give better representation. I mean, I think that now children's television, which doesn't do a lot of coverage on American history, but I think the stuff that has, has done a pretty good job of, of fixing the representation issue, but they still don't really explain to children how um, change happens or you know, they kind of give us a, a mustache twirling bad guy as opposed to showing 
you know, what were the actual obstacles? There's a great children's book called Freedom Summer, which is about uh, two boys growing up in Mississippi in the summer of 1964, which was the summer when the Freedom Riders and the, not the Freedom Riders, SNCC came down to Mississippi and started trying to push for the right for black people to vote. Before we continue, could you uh, clarify what SNCC is? Sure, I'm sorry. SNCC was the the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. It was the student arm of the civil rights movement. That was the leading student organization. And so um, this is all set during that summer and you've got a white boy and his black friend and his black friend's mom is the maid for the white boy's family. Um, and they're about seven or eight years old and running all over their small town. And they want to go get popsicles at the general store, but they're not allowed to walk in the front door together. So they kind of run away and try to figure out what they're going to do. And they're really excited because they're going to desegregate the town pool and they're going to be able to go off and swim together. So they go and they get in their suits and they run to the swimming pool and what they see is the young black boy's older brother is part of a crew that is filling in the swimming pool with concrete because the town has decided if they're being forced to desegregate the pool, they'd rather not have a public pool than to allow the black children and the white children to swim together. Now, that's a pretty sophisticated analysis of what was happening in 1964, but it's also delivered in a way that children can really understand. And so we haven't really seen that kind of um, delivery of history in children's television. And so the team that I'm working with, we won't be able to do it as Schoolhouse Rock because Disney owns the intellectual property of Schoolhouse Rock. And I don't think they're going to hand that over to us, at least not on a budget we can afford. But we're going to try to do a similar project. We think it's a really good time for it because, you know, in the world of TikTok and streaming, you know, you can do three, four, 10 minute um, shorts that kids in elementary school and middle school are going to want to watch. So oftentimes children are viewed um, in a sense that they can't collect or understand lots of information. And uh, perhaps uh, part of the reasoning why they uh, people tend to sugarcoat this idea of American history is because they don't trust children's ability to contemplate these issues. Um, how, what do you believe on this, and how do you think, uh, believe, uh, it should be portrayed to children? Well, there's a lot of expert um, analysis that's been done about what children can and can't handle at certain ages. I certainly don't think we should be talking about, you know, sexual violence towards black women during slavery to first and second graders. That's not an appropriate level. But there are ways to bring in experts in the project that we're working on. We've got teams of experts, educators who work on these issues who say, you know, this is what a third grader can understand. This is what a sixth grader can understand. And we're working with those experts because we really believe getting this stuff to children early is not only a good way to help them learn the, the content, but it's also a good way to get them excited about history. And I don't think that, that keeping the history out of their hands does anybody any good or does certainly doesn't do the children any good. Well said. So uh, later this week, uh, uh, or pre, uh, last week, you were interviewed by NPR. Um, and firstly, congratulations. Thank you. And secondly, uh, when and where can listeners tune into this? Well, I don't know yet. The interview was done for the Here and Now program. I did that on Friday, and they told me they thought it would be running this week. But um, if you can put it in, in notes with your 
podcast, as soon as I get the link, they said they'd send it to me once it came out. I can send you a link and, and people will be able to take a listen to that. Well, excellent. I'll be sure to leave it in the link, uh, in the, uh, leave a link in the uh, description. Along with that, uh, how is your uh, project coming along right now? Well, we've just applied for funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities. So now we got to sit and wait for a few months. We're supposed to hear sometime this summer about um, whether we'll get funding, but we've got our, our first season planned out in terms of the episodes that we want to do. We've got, I can't say who it is because I can't go public with it yet, but we've got a pretty well-known um, hip-hop uh, producer and, and rapper um, who wants to be involved with it. And we've got a really great uh, filmmaker who's got a lot of experience in, in shows that everybody's heard of. Again, I can't say who that is, unfortunately. And we've got an all-star team of historians and educators and, and literary scholars who are all ready to make this work. So I, I'm really hopeful that we'll be able to start digging in on this by the fall and uh, hopefully start to have some of this out. We're going to start pitching it to, to networks like Netflix and Hulu and, and see, see who might be interested. Well, excellent. 250 years after America's independence, it's time to re-examine Schoolhouse Rock and bring it back into ch children's homes. So, thank you, Dr. Paul Ringel. Uh, I thank, and thank you for tuning into Dialogues with the Past, a High Point University history podcast. Please tune in every two weeks for a new episode with the new expert.